word of our Lord from the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord says, I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all of your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields, so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all of your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins that shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. And so they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The word of our Lord from the epistle to the Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, the minister of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of, of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, which was given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by his church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. 
according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. Open our eyes and open our ears to what you have for us this morning. Minister to us, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. A couple of months ago on Trinity Sunday, we talked about the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity, not just as a particular point of Christian teaching, Indeed, not even an important point or even the most important point. But instead, we talked about how the doctrine of the Trinity is in fact the theological foundation upon which the Christian thought is built and the vital wellspring from which all Christian living flows. The Trinity is where it all begins. All of our thinking about Christ, all of our living in Christ comes from the fact that God is in eternity, three persons in continual, selfless, and self-giving love because He's created us in that triune image. Since then, we've been carefully walking through the major themes of biblical theology, seeing how these major themes help us to better understand what's happening in the grand scheme of the biblical narrative. The story of creation, fall, and redemption, being made in God's image, losing God's presence as we fell into sin. And the effects of our sin and how it's disordered all of our lives because it's disordered our hearts. And how God refuses to leave us there but comes and enters into covenant with His people so that He might redeem them ultimately not just from their enemies among the nations, but ultimately from the enemy of the human heart. One of our guiding ideas has been quite simply this, what has been lost will be redeemed. Jesus himself declared that he came for nothing less than to seek and to save that which was lost. And so the scriptures tell us that the image of God is to be remade as we are conformed to the image of Christ. The Scriptures tell us that the presence of God is to be restored both in our hearts as we invite Him into our hearts, but also in our midst as the church, as we are His people. God 
longs to be with his people. And if you'll remember from these last several weeks, we've been talking about that recurring, it's almost like a motif in Scripture. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it's always in connection to his presence with them. God likes you so much for whatever reason that he wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. For whatever reason he finds me likable, he tells us over and over again, I want to be with you. And so, of course, when we speak of salvation, we're not talking about just some some theoretical abstract that happens in the heavens. We're talking about God making his home in the human heart and among the human race through his church. The presence of God is key because the image of God is key. But the problem of sin, the scriptures tell us, is to be undone. The problem of the fall, the problem of sin, its consequences, its work, its nature, its results in our lives, its brokenness and its power over us are to be undone. And the New Testament tells us, just as the Old Testament told us, that that is something that is to be done, not just at the end of days, but it's something that is being undone in our lives as God's people. Notice the prophet Ezekiel, when he talks about the new covenant that is coming, he talks about how God's people will not just be saved from the consequences of their sin, but their actual sin itself will be dealt with. You will be my people. You will walk in my statutes. You will keep my covenant. Another guiding principle has been that in order to redeem fallen man, God comes to the source of the problem. He does not stand away from the problem. He enters into it. That's what Christmas is all about. I don't know if, like me, you're counting down the days to Christmas, but I saw just a couple of days ago, well, four days ago now, we're five week, or five months away from Christmas. I'm excited. That's what the whole story of the Gospel is about, that God has come to the source of our problem. He's entered into our problem. He's not, he's not kept arm's length away from it. He's entered into it in His Son Jesus. And He's entered into it in His Holy Spirit. Because He comes to the source of the problem. Not only the problem in the human race, not only in entering the human race through the incarnation of Jesus, His eternal Son, but also He enters into the source of the problem, enters into the human heart through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God gets down into the muck and the mire of our brokenness. Personally. Why? As the prophets and psalmists made so clear, it is the broken and twisted heart of man that is the heart of the problem. Exposing this need is one of the great successes of the wildly successful Old Covenant. Too often we talk about the Old Covenant as if it's something that didn't do its job. It was God's plan A that we would earn our salvation by keeping rules and that when that didn't work, God came up with plan B. 
But the Old Testament and the New Testament are both very bold in declaring that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, did its job. It showed us who God is, it showed us who we are, and it showed us what it is to live in covenantal relationship with Him, and it showed us most especially that we can't do that in our own strength. There's something fundamentally broken and wrong, something twisted, something ingrained within the human heart that has got to be dealt with. And the Latin phrase for it is cor in curvatus ad se. A heart closed in on itself. That closed in heart, that that self-grasping, self-protecting, self-defending, self-claiming, self-defining, that heart that's closed in on itself like a vacuum or like a black hole, that in some, is our problem. The problem is not just for the prophets that Israel didn't keep God's commandments. The problem was that Israel couldn't keep God's commandments because they didn't want to. They had divided hearts. They had hearts that kind of wanted to be God's people, but not with all the baggage that came along with it, not with all the baggage of truth-telling, not with all the baggage of, of being fair and honest, not with all the baggage of caring for the poor among them, not with all of the baggage of living a holy life before God. The heart closed in on itself. It is the sum of our problem, but it's also the reason why committing to a local church is so important in our life in Jesus and our growth in His Spirit. Church consumerism, where we you know, are always looking for what fits us and always looking for what's newest and hippest and coolest, and we've got a really cool mic here if you haven't noticed and we're trying to be hip. Um, this this church consumerism which is pervading the the Christian culture in the West, it's so fundamentally broken because it feeds on our brokenness. It placates our brokenness. That church is about me. It's about me fitting in and me feeling comfortable, me doing what I want. Notice we've not made it a point to be terribly uncomfortable this morning, but we are terribly uncomfortable this morning. I think the heat is actually on rather than the air. We've had the maintenance guys up on the roof this morning trying to get it fixed, and they were calling down to me saying it's hot up there. I said, well, it's hot down here. Keep working. Um, church shouldn't be comfortable, to be honest. I mean, yeah, we all want good coffee, and we want nice seats, and we want to look our best, and you know, not all of us want to look our best, but you know, we we do like being around people we we like. We like being able to laugh together before church. We like being able to cut up together afterwards. We like the fact that we like each other and we want to go to lunch together afterwards. But if church is all about me being comfortable and me being able to slip in and slip out without being noticed, if church is all about me having my needs met and my wants placated and about the music I like and the people I like and the people who like the teams that I like. If that's what church is, then if, or if that's what we're seeking in church, then we're just fueling the problem of the brokenness of the human heart. 
Maybe we ought to say, hey, don't like the music? Good. Get annoyed by the people? Good. Church is to be a place where we bump up against people that are different, where we bump up against things that are not our ideals so that God can make us into His ideal. God made us for a relationship. To know Him and to love Him. To be known by Him and to be loved by Him. And it shouldn't surprise us then that redemption comes through knowing Him and loving Him. Through being known by Him and loved by Him. He promises to transform us through relationship. It was Jesus who on Monday Thursday, the night that He was betrayed, prayed, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. Jesus tells us that knowing God, and specifically knowing God in Christ, is eternal life. Eternal life is not just something that happens at the point of death. It's not about what is beyond the grave. It's not about getting a ticket to heaven. It's about knowing the true and living triune God. And so what the Scriptures invite us into is a relationship with the triune God. A relationship with the Father in the Son through the Spirit. This is eternal life. It is the privilege of every believer, the text tells us. And we should settle for nothing less than to know the living God. But this invitation into transformative relationship isn't just about me and Him. It's not just about us and Him to the exclusion of others and to the exclusion of one another. The Christian life is about cooperating with the grace of God as Christ is at work in us by His Holy Spirit. It's about cooperating with that grace, surrendering to the work of God's Spirit, getting completely into the life of Christ and His redeeming work in our lives through His Spirit. And so we must therefore know where and how He is at work in us. And He's at work within us in primarily three relational realms, or you might think of them as spheres in our lives. He's at work in us, obviously, within our hearts. But not just within our hearts, as though it's some abstract, non-concrete thing, but also He's at work in our hearts and in our lives. He is in the work of transforming who we are from the inside out. And so His Spirit comes to take up residence within us so that He can remake us, so that He can make all things new. So that He can redeem us completely. He is in the business of transforming us. And it starts in the heart and bleeds out into the life that is lived in Christ. But He's at work also within our relationships with others. Oh, my head. I'm flying through. Sorry, guys. He's at work within our relationships with others as we interact with spouses, as we spend time with friends, as we 
bump up against coworkers, as we have to deal with bosses and folks who work for the county and the air's not on. He's at work in our relationships with other people. In fact, Jesus told his disciples as he was teaching the crowds that what we do to even the least of these, we do unto him. He is at work in our lives when we approach the prison to visit the inmate. He is at work in our lives when we get a knock on the door because someone's car is broken down and they're needing gas. He's at work in our lives with all of the relationships, whether they're deep and long-lasting relationships or just short blips on the radar of our lives. He's at work in our lives through the relationships that we have with others. And He's at work within, in our lives within the life and ministry of the church. You know, there's something that happens when we gather together as the people of God in a church. There's something that happens that we don't have in a, in a, in a biological family. And there's something that happens that we don't have in a group of friends that get together. I've got friends from college, and some of them actually were friends in high school that I'll share a little bit about in just a moment. But when we get together, whether it's a camp or a manual meeting or just trying to get the families together, um, we've even gone on some vacations to get, well, a vacation together. Um, you know, there's something magical that happens when you're among friends, friends that have old stories together and can laugh at inside jokes that nobody else is picking up on. There's something, there's something beautiful about that, but there's something, there's something, I would say, even more beautiful about people in a church who come from different backgrounds, who are part of different families, who have different careers, who have different sports teams that they like, who some of them don't even like sports, um, who have different hurts and different baggage and all those things. Because what happens in the life of a church like that is we have to commit ourselves to family that it would be easy to get away from. You know, it's easy to walk away from a church. It's far too easy. You don't like how something goes or, you know, you're just getting tired of it. That preacher doesn't have the zest that he once used to have and he doesn't seem to be, you know, very applicational anymore. It's easy to walk away because, you know, you don't have to see him the next Sunday. If you don't show up, there's, there, are, there are spheres in our lives um, marriage and family, the family we grew up with, our extended family, our friends, people that we grew up with in the neighborhood, people that we went to college with. There are those spheres in our lives where we, where we get along and we're committed for the long haul. And the church ought to be the same sort of thing, where we're, we're committed as unto family. In fact, the scriptures speak of the church as the family of God. There's a different type of existence that we find a different type of um, a different mode of operation that we enter into when we commit ourselves to a, to a local body and say you know what I don't have to be committed to you because you're not family you're not the people who raised me you're not the people I'm having to raise you're not the people that I spend you know every game watching with spend time with every game watching i don't know what just happened to that sentence there but you're you're not 
my normal sphere of friends. You're not my normal sphere of family, but we are committed to one another because God is doing something, I would call it magical among us, but I don't want to freak anybody out. I'll call it something gracious, something miraculous among us as He's transforming us and teaching us to love one another. And not just love one another, but also to bear with one another. I like that the New Testament, when it talks about the life of the church, it talks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But another thing that, another phrase that it also uses is forgiving one another and bearing with one another. Because those aren't the same thing. You forgive someone who sins against you. You forgive someone who does you wrong, but you bear with someone who aggravates you. You bear with someone who annoys you. You bear with someone who's difficult to bear or difficult to put up with. And we're all that way. There are people, I know for a fact, this used to not be so because I used to really, really care about how everybody felt about me and that everybody thought Adam was a really cool, nice guy. And I still try my best to be a really cool, nice guy. Lindsay can tell you I never say no. Um, But where was I going with that? Um, There are people I know who don't like me. There are people who think that... There are people who think that I'm crazy. There are people who think that, 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 that I'm a jerk. There are people who, I don't know why, but here I am trying to apologize for myself and, and explain myself. But I know that there are people who I rub the wrong way. And the gospel tells us that as we're brought together as a family, as we're brought together as the body of Christ, that we are to forgive one another when we do one another wrong, but we're also to bear with one another. You know, we live in a culture that we don't bear with anybody. You don't get served well at a restaurant, you're not going back. I've actually, Lindsay can tell you how annoying this is. She's one of the ones that has to bear with me. Um, I've been making it a point for these last couple of years to... Not to complain, but I guess it is that. But when something goes wrong at a restaurant or at a store or where I feel like, you know, we things just weren't up to par, I've been making a point not to get mad and say we're not going back, but instead to actually speak with the manager and say, hey, look, we want to give you guys another shot. Here's what's going on. Here's what went, went, here's what went down. And here's how that could be made right because we – because I don't want to be the type of guy who's always mad about everybody and boycotting everything and staying away from everybody that annoys me and things like that. But we live in a culture that tells us that's the norm. You get frustrated, you quit. Something happens you don't like, you walk away. We, unfortunately, even do that in our families sometimes. And it's to our shame. But Christ died, the Scriptures tell us, not just to get you into heaven after death. That will come. But He died for the church, the New Testament tells us, which is His body. The Scriptures tell us that He loves the church, which is His bride. The Scriptures tell us that He is currently at work to purify and cleanse the church, which He calls His very own inheritance. Don't forget, the Scriptures were written... Not just to individual Christians, but to the church generally and to local congregations specifically. Congregations like ours, small groups, 
who are trying to meet together and worship together and serve the Lord faithfully together so that they can, in some finite way, transform their communities together by sharing the gospel. The scriptures were written sometimes to the pastors of those churches, particularly. God is concerned not just with you and with me, but with us. This week, first day of camp, um, we had just gotten to camp, and I'm talking about within five minutes of getting there, we're walking in, Pippin falls off the bed, has a concussion, Lindsay has to take him to the hospital. It was, it was absolutely terrifying as a dad. And uh, once we realized that everything was, was fine with him and that they're headed back from the, the hospital having had a CT scan and gotten all clear and been evaluated for a couple hours, David told me that um, he had something else he wanted to talk with me about. And I knew, I knew it couldn't be good. That's not you know, normally how you start a conversation that is good news. Um, and he told me about uh, my pastor growing up, Steve Flick, and he and his wife were in a car wreck and that his wife was killed immediately and that Steve was in the hospital recovering from wounds, broken ribs, and punctured liver. And, um, I mean, immediately it was like, I mean, yeah, it was, it was just overwhelming, unexpected sadness. Um, and, you know, not being able to get your mind around it how Dr. Flick is coping. And I remember he and Miss Beth's influence in my life growing up. They he pastored our church just for a couple of years, but it was very formative years while while I was in high school, while God was transforming me as a uh, as a teenager and ha- as actually while I was wrestling with the call to ministry. And I remember a lot of things, I remember specific things he used to tell me and ask me each week after service, I remember he used to always shake my hand and pull me in real tight and say, are you on the winning team, Adam? Are you on the winning team? And I told him just last year at annual meeting how much that still means to me and that I actually mentioned it in class to some of my students. But I grew up in a church, Riverside Independent Methodist Church, a church that many would have said, and many did say, was dead and lifeless. It was a church that was declining in size. It was a church that was getting older. It was a church that many said was too formal and too old. And as I reflect back on that church life growing up in this enormous, beautiful sanctuary and this awesome you know, campus that had a, a real basketball court inside and really nice air conditioning that was always faithful to be on on Sundays. And as I reflect back on that, I remember, yeah, the church was old. There were old people. I remember the church was formal. We sang the uh, doxology and the glory of Patra. Glory, yeah, the glory of Patri. Each Sunday we said the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. We sang from the hymn book. We didn't have a screen. We didn't have a really cool microphone like this. I remember there were times where I thought, yeah, it's kind of dead. It's really quiet and awkward. When it got quiet, it was really awkward. It would take time to get up the stairs, get up front and get up stairs and get over to the pulpit that was in the center of the very large stage. If someone was singing a special, I remember always thinking, why can't they be, like, be on the ready? They're at the top of the stairs, ready to go as soon as the prayer's done. It was awkward. 
But you know that dead, lifeless, formal, old church, it produced guys like me, which is not really saying all that much. I shouldn't be their poster child. But it produced people like Robert Andrews, who's planting and pastoring a church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. He was one of my best friends growing up. It produced people like Chris Williams, who was our evangelist at camp last year and is one of my best friends, was the best man at my wedding and is pastoring a church plant in Rose Hill, Mississippi, of all places, a little country town out in nowhere, Mississippi. And like I said, it produced me. That dead, lifeless, formal, old church, it was producing new life. It was multiplying itself. I remember... Despite its formality, in fact, maybe because of its formality, it nourished my heart and mind because it fed my imagination. It fed my spiritual imagination. The stained glass, the hymns, and the liturgy. I was growing. Yeah, it was old. There were far more old people than there were young people. And when I say far more, I mean really far. I mean substantial. There were a lot of old people. I, I remember on Sunday mornings, we'd get out of Sunday school. I was probably seven or eight years old. I'd go into the gym with my friends. We'd shoot some hoops for a little bit. I wasn't staying very long because I was going to the fellowship hall to drink coffee with the elderly. I guess I thought I was cool stuff, hanging out with old people and being the young one in the crowd and drinking coffee, which most of my peers weren't doing. I remember pulling out a quarter or a dime and dropping one into the tip jar that they had on the table there and grabbing my cup and pouring probably twice as much creamer into it as I put coffee in it. But I remember hanging out with all these old people. Some of them had blue hair. Yeah, it happens. But God was at work getting me beyond myself, preparing me really to be a pastor. I remember, in fact, I was remembering just a couple of weeks ago as we were driving down the road, we passed a set of apartments, and immediately it brought back to my mind standing out of a very, very eerily similar set of apartments in Jackson, Mississippi on Christmas, well, a week before Christmas, out in the cold, in the dark, caroling to shut-ins. Old members of that church that I hadn't seen in years, I probably didn't even remember them. But I knew their name and I knew every year we'd be at their place caroling. Not an ideal church to grow up in, maybe a dead, old, lifeless, informal church. But my prayer for our kids, these kids here, my my kids, Jeremy, Billy, your kids, the Malones, if you're listening on the podcast later, your kids. My my prayer for our kids, the kids of our church, for Caden, for for my neighbor's kids is that they'll grow up in a church just as dead, just as lifeless, just as formal, just as old as the church that produced me if it'll produce in them what it's produced in my life. If it'll produce pastors and church planners and missionaries, if it'll produce worship leaders, if it'll produce people who are pouring themselves out for the sake of the gospel, then so be it. Let's be an old church. Let's be a weird church. Let's be a church of people who don't always get along, but are always in this life together, faithfully serving one another and faithfully serving with one another the world around us. 
Because it's in the church where we bump up against people who are different than we are. It's in that church that God's grace does deeper and deeper works within us. Work that can't be done when we're always being placated and when we're always being uh, comfortable and when we're always having the air on. I promise the air will be on next week if I've got any, any say in it. Because it's in the context of the church. It's in the context of God entering into our hearts and our lives and getting out into our relationships with others and getting us out into the life and ministry of the church, not as a tack on, but as an essential to faith in Jesus. It's in that context of shared life together that God does the work of undoing sin's shattered relationships because we're brought into a new family, a different kind of family. You know, all great stories are built upon conflict. We mentioned the greatest of all stories earlier, the story of Scripture, the story of creation, fall, and redemption. But that plot line is typically spoken of as the setup, the upset, and then the reset. And all great stories are built upon conflict. We, In literature, when I was a kid, we learned that there's conflict of man versus God or spiritual forces, man versus man, and man versus himself, and man versus nature. Well, I was going to say this morning, I don't know how the church helps us deal with man versus nature, but it's hot. And so maybe that's some way in which God is helping us to work through the conflicts that we have when we're uncomfortable physically. But in the context of the church, the relationships that we find therein, it's in that context that God begins to rebuild His relationship with us where He begins to rebuild the brokenness of our relationships with our fellow man, whether it's marriages being restored and put back together, whether it's friendships that are broken and splintered, being healed and mended, whether it's parents falling in love with their kids again or kids recognizing that their parents aren't so bad and have been placed in their lives by God again. It's in the context of a thing like this and a gathering such as this that God is at work restoring those broken relationships, teaching us how to live among others that we might not have even chosen for ourselves. And man versus himself, it's, it's in a context such as this that God brings us to face who we are and the brokenness of our own hearts and our own lives and our need to get our hands and the grips of our hands off of our hearts and off of our lives as He turns us outward toward others. So how do we nurture these relational realms of life? How do we allow God's Spirit, surrender to the work of His Spirit, to give us new hearts, hearts of flesh, to cleanse us and to wash us with water? How do we allow God to submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to God so that He might put us back in the place where He wants us? 
to enjoy His presence? How do we surrender ourselves to His work in our hearts and in our relationships and as the body? The simple answer is we interact with His grace. We cooperate with it through the means of grace. You know, we read His Word. We pray in His Spirit. We practice in practical ways loving service to one another. We intentionally enter into nurturing relationships with one another where we're able to share conversation together and share meals together, where we're able to confess our sins to one another, to be accountable to someone else, to submit to someone else, to admonish one another. If you don't have friends in your life that can point, point to you privately and call you out privately and say, hey, I'm not liking what I'm seeing in your marriage. Hey, I'm not liking what I'm seeing with how you're talking to your friends. If you don't have that type of person in your life, then you need more relationships that are truly nurturing. And we nurture life within the body of Christ by meeting regularly for worship together, celebrating the sacraments together, serving regularly in ministry together. I remember as a kid hearing the saying, if you want to get wet, you got to get in the tub. And that's always stood out in my mind as how God always works. You want His grace in your life, then you got to get where the grace is to be found. And yes, it's found in scriptures, it's found in prayer, it's found also in holy relationships that God calls us into the holy relationships of marriage and family the holy relationships of friendship and the holy relationships that we find in a local church such as this. We need each other. Not just we, but as a human race, people need other people. People need other people that they can serve practically and submit to practically. God is at work transforming our lives He invites us into relationship with Himself and He immediately sends us out into relationships with other people so that that work of transformation can take root and can spread throughout the totality of our lives. And may we completely and unreservedly submit ourselves to His holy work in us and among us and through us. Let's pray.